the Oscar Pistorius trial. Share your view. SMS 31702 or 31567. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. 27 minutes to 11 o'clock. Let's quickly speak to Dr. David Klatso just to make sense of what we're hearing in court at the moment. Private forensic consultant. Good morning to you, David. Welcome to the show. Always a pleasure speaking to you. Good morning, Reedy. How Thank are you? you. And good Very morning well. to all your listeners. We, we spoke last week about the importance of, uh, of forensics. And yesterday when the pathologist was testifying, there was a question that came via Twitter. Why is a pathologist being cross-examined? Surely when you're dealing with scientific matter, it's all factual and there's no need... Uh, to cross-examine, but uh, a, a different expert may arrive at a different interpretation of the same evidence. Why is this important? This, you see, the all-pervasive and pernicious effect of CSI uh, is coming through to your listeners. All scientific evidence, all forensic evidence is a matter of inference. Unless, of course, the forensic scientist is standing there when the crime is committed, then he can give eyewitness evidence. But If he isn't, he has to take the scraps of evidence that he can find at the scene and draw inferences from those. And when you draw inferences, it depends on the totality of facts which are in your possession. So if the expert for the state draws certain inferences, it will depend what facts he's collected. It will depend on the acuity of his ability, of his his observations. It will depend on the accuracy with which he writes it down and photographs it. And if the defense come along and they can find other facts which might alter those inferences, then it would be very difficult for the state to prove its case if those other inferences are equally valid. Mm -hmm. So all forensic evidence is inference evidence, and it's opinion evidence, and that opinion can be changed. Mm. Now, um, something else that is coming through... uh Colonel Vermeulen was asked to give specific dates about when he arrived on the scene and and, and so on. Why is that crucial? Is is, is it more important to arrive shortly after the the, the crime has been committed or even days after the information gleaned from that place would would still be relevant? Okay, now... The, the sooner you can get to a crime scene, the better, because you can freeze it in time. If you've got people walking around and messing up the scene, and uh, take, for instance, the, the, the crime scene in the, the, the Kebel murder, okay? Mm-hmm. You had everybody and the dog walking over the scene. And that has the tendency and the propensity to alter that forensic evidence forever. Fingerprints are smudged, things are taken out of the car, bullets are picked up. The crime scene is irrevocably altered. So the sooner you can get to a crime scene as an investigator, the better it is. Forensic evidence is never improved by the lapse of time. Mm-hmm. And now the focus then is on the cricket bat and where it fits into this very, very intriguing case. What are your thoughts on that on that one? What questions should be asked answered well, about it? I I haven't seen the evidence on the cricket bat. I see that that is, is taking place at the moment. Um, but clearly the way in which the cricket bat was used to knock down the door is going to be crucial. The damage it did to the door will be crucial in at least two respects. One uh, of the respects is uh, whether it coincided, and I I haven't seen a a photograph recently of the door, whether the damage done by the cricket bat, which was on the right-hand side of the door, corresponded with the bullet holes, which I think is more towards the left-hand side of the door. Now the question will be raised, of course, was that before or after? So there are issues which are going to be raised about that. 
Uh, I've got little or no doubt the noise made by the cricket bat beating down the door is going to become an issue. And I I would guess if I were advising the defense team uh, and if I were advising the uh, prosecution team, I would suggest that you do adequate tests in order to try and ascertain if there's a qualitative and quantitative differences between the sound of a gunshot and the sound of a cricket bat on that door mm-hmm. at that hour of night. So those things are going to be important, and if I don't miss my guest by a mile, uh, I think that they're going to be forensic acoustic experts who are going to give that evidence uh, in the next uh, few days or maybe in next week. Mm-hmm. And then the issue of timing. I see on my SMS line, Summer asking the question, which came first, the cricket bat or the gunshots? Surely that would be easy to determine because if the, if it's a gunshot first, then the identifications on the on the door would be different. Well, not necessarily. Okay, because. Uh, it, it will depend on a whole range of things. If the two co- coincided, in other words, if the gunshot wounds were in the same p- area of wood and you could, you could possibly see that the one gunshot wound uh, to the door was different <clears throat> because it had gone through an already broken door, that's possible. Uh, but I, I'm not sure. I haven't seen the door, and I would like to have a look at the door before I comment on that. But it may not be possible, of course, if the gunshots are in a different part of the door. Uh, You won't be able to see that. What is going to be quite important is that the examination of the bullets may very well tell you if the bullet has passed through wood or not. Because those bullets that uh, Oscar used, uh, it's a a bullet that is called a black talon. And they are designed to expand. They're like any other hollow-nosed bullet. It's designed to expand when it hits the target. But when that bullet would go through a door, it would start to expand as it starts to go through the door. And it will pick up fragments of wood which can be easily demonstrated on the bullet. So we would look at that bullet under the microscope and have a uh, good idea as to whether it had passed through the door. Now, of course, if there's one of the bullets which has passed through the door which doesn't have wood on it, then it might well be that the cricket bat came first. So those are all issues of forensic science which could be used to test Oscar's version and to test the state case. Mm. And then we've got a question here from Chris. Uh, Chris says, please ask David why they don't use a number of experts to do forensics at the same time to get a wider range of opinions. Well, I think they are. I think that there are, you, you'll see that as this unfolds, there are a range of experts that are being used. You must remember already Gert Simon has given evidence. He's given evidence about the height of the wounds, the nature of the wounds, that he's given an opinion as to whether Riva would have been able to scream or not. And we've already got that from the defense that after the head wound, she wouldn't have been able to make a sound. So the sequence of those wounds is going to play a vital role in coming to the conclusion and for the following reason. If the first shot hit Riva in the hip, it is highly likely that she screamed. If Oscar continued shooting after that scream, then he's got problems explaining that to the court. If, however, the first shot hit her in the head, she didn't scream, and then there would not be that identification feature which would have enabled him to stop shooting. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be crucial uh, for testing his version. The second thing, of course, is the, the food in the stomach. And here we're going to see a very interesting issue that is unpacked before the court. And it's interesting for two reasons. Firstly, in the Truscott case, which took place some years ago, 20 or 30 years, 25 years ago, 
in uh, in Canada, mm-hmm. uh, a young man was convicted of murder on the basis of the time taken for food to leave the stomach. Yeah. A young girl was murdered, and the question of whether he could have been in the area at the time of her death related to the the, 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 the presence of food in her stomach, and they could place accurately when she'd last eaten. Now, in this case, it's a slightly different equation in that they're using it in the reverse direction. They're saying the presence of food in her stomach is a proof positive that she ate within two hours. That case all those years ago uh, turned on that issue, and the pathologists gave very dogmatic evidence about how long it took food to exit the stomach. And it usually takes it usually takes about two hours, but it's not written in stone. And I would guess very much that the defense are going to lead evidence from an expert gastroenterologist, somebody who specializes in gastric motility, to say that it is a variable factor. Mm. And they're going to cast doubt that way on Gert Simon's testimony. Um, and it's going to be a very interesting duel between two experts. What I find fascinating, and I may have missed this, but I didn't hear... Uh, Barry Rue put to Gert Simon that their expert would come and say something different. Uh, uh. And that you should do. The expert must be confronted with what the defense experts are going to come and say. I didn't hear that. So I don't know whether they're going to call a gastroenterologist, but if I were acting for the defense, I would certainly examine and explore that avenue very thoroughly. Yeah, And the fact that Simon did, uh, Simon did say that it's not a perfect science, there is one aspect where he said it's not a perfect science, so perhaps that's a, that's a concession on his part? Well, yes, but he didn't make the concession. You see, it would have to be considerably different from the two hours. Uh. In other words, that two hours of the, of the food residing in the stomach would have to be extended out to the time that they went to bed on Oscar's version, which is 10 o'clock. Mm-hmm. And that's considerably different from uh, 12 o'clock at night, okay. 1 o'clock in the morning. That's a total different kettle of fish. Remember, she was shot at 3 o'clock and died at 3 o'clock, which would freeze the digestive process. So if you take two, two hours back from, two o'clock, uh, from 3 o'clock, it goes, uh, 2 o'clock, 1 o'clock, they would have to extend it back to 12 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock. That's another three hours. And that might be difficult. So I'm, I'm waiting with some considerable anticipation to hear how they deal with that. Because, of course, that deals with Oscar's version and his credibility as to what happened that night. Mm, mm, mm. And then uh, let's just take, we've got a few people who want to ask you a question. I know we have to let you go in about two minutes. We'll do that just now. Martin in Kenilworth. Hi. Hi there. Um, Dr. Fester, will the four gunshots um, actually match up with four marks on the door? I think that's an interesting point. There should be four. They may well do. And in fact, that will be the gist and the gravamen of the, of the ballistic evidence. Because you must remember that those gunshots going through the door uh, will then have struck, not only did they strike Reva, but some of them might have passed through Reva and struck the wall behind. And that will give an idea as to the position of the shooter, because bullets, of course, travel in a straight line. The position of the shooter is fairly defined. We know Oscar's height. We know how he would have held the gun. And uh, equally well, we know where the bullet struck Reva. So that's going to be very important, as is the fact, as I mentioned earlier, which one struck her first. That's going to be absolutely key in trying to unravel this unhappy mystery. Mm-hmm. Last caller, Manny in Belleville. Hi. 
Hi there. I just wanted to find out. I'm not sure if this was already covered, but um, the water in the in the in the toilet at the time, in relation to whether her bladder was full or empty at the time, had they already looked into that as far as maybe how old the water is in the toilet, and then also whether there was water in her bladder and how old that was, or whether the bladder yeah. was empty or full. Yeah, I don't know if they've looked at that, but I wonder whether it would be significant and it's possible to determine that link. Dr. Tatsu? Well, of course, most people flush the toilet after they've been to the toilet. So you would probably have clean water in the toilet. That's the first thing. The second thing is that it depends how long before her demise she last went to the loo. So all of those things are going to be an issue. And Gert Simon has already indicated uh, that there was about a teaspoonful of urine in the bladder. Of course, I'm not sure uh, whether they investigated the possibility of spontaneous urination after death. If, if you are killed in such a brutal fashion, there's a very good chance that your sphincters will relax and that you will pass whatever water is in your bladder at the time. So I'm not sure if they look for urine on the floor. I'm not sure to what extent the police investigation uh, actually covered that area. But I don't think analyzing the toilet water would be much help um, in this particular issue. But I think that's going to play a relatively minor role. We'll see. Okay, and uh, thank you very much, Dr. Klaus. I understand you can stay with us for a few more minutes. When we return, we've got some questions about what the deceased may have been wearing and how uh, that gets uh, uh, tested in this process. Let's just take a break. We'll resume this conversation in a moment. It's probably the trial of the century and a story that shook not just South Africa, but the world. The killing shocked the world. Awash with guns, alcohol, violence, corruption. Oscar Pistorius. Find everything you need to know about the Oscar trial, including a live audio broadcast, court proceedings, statements, affidavits, and more. Get the EWN news coverage on the online portal at ewn.co.za forward slash Oscar. Mike's broken down in the middle of nowhere again. Can you go give him a toe? I was just about to call it a day. Oh, well, here are the keys to the Nissan NP300 hardbody. Why don't you give them to John? Uh, I don't have to be home for a while, do it rather. Enjoy getting the job done in a Nissan NP300 hardbody 2.5 TDI base now from a fantastic 188,000. Visit your nearest Nissan dealer or nissan.co.za to experience the proud heritage and proven capability of the Nissan NP300 hardbody 2.5 TDI base for only 188,000. T's and C's apply. Nissan, innovation that excites. Rhino killings are at an all-time high. Last year, 1,004 rhinos were killed in South Africa. Nearly three beautiful rhinos butchered every day. If we don't do something about it now, it will be too late. It's time to throw the rhino a lifeline. By creating awareness and donating funds, Konica Minolta South Africa is protecting these gentle giants for future generations. Konica Minolta South Africa. Saving the African rhino. Proudly Bidvest. Wednesdays are a big deal at Fruit and Veg City, which means big deals every Wednesday. This Wednesday, you can buy a 1.5 kg Royal Gala Apple Econo Pack for just $19.99. And you'll get another Econo Pack absolutely free. Offer valid at Gauteng stores only. Fruit and Veg City and Food Lovers Market, the heart of good food. Join the conversation. The Oscar Pistorius Trial on Talk Radio 702 and 567. Cape Talk. Call 011-883-0702 or 021-446-0567.
Lots of people asking about the clothes that uh, Riva may have been wearing. And Kiriboni, I understand your question relates to that as well. Yes, that's correct. Yesterday there was a comment from Dr. Simon that the clothes that she was wearing was full of blood. But I'm not hearing a lot of comments about what significance that has on the case. Okay. David? Well, of course, the issue, the issue will be this. Are the clothes that she was wearing at the time of her death the clothes that she would normally have worn to bed? Uh, most people change out of their day clothes into some kind of night attire. And that question is going to be raised. Were her underclothes the kind of clothes that she would be wearing to bed or not? Um, and so that will, that will raise its head, later, its head later in the trial and will be an indication as to whether they were awake or whether they were asleep at the time. Mm-hmm. And David, I imagine that uh, the prosecution or even the defense, do they, do they normally save their best, I don't know, witness or evidence for last? Because it's very interesting to me that nobody has spoken about, about her clothes as an indication of whether they were indeed sleeping or not. Uh, I mean, do, 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 I imagine you don't play all your cards all at, all at once, right? Yes. Look, the, there's a list of witnesses. There are 107 witnesses. And those have been called in virtually a random order at the moment. And often, and it's important to understand this, often the way in which you unfold your evidence before the court is quite important. It's a little bit like a chess game. And Harry Nell is the leader of that evidence. He's got a complete and absolute discretion as to who he leads, when he leads, and whether he leads them. And what he will do... He will play that like the opening gambits in a chess game. And he will lead his evidence in a way which he wants to make a particular point to the court and in the order in which he wants to make that evidence available to the court. And his discretion is absolute in how he does that. So there's no set order. There's no rule of thumb. It's, it's, it's a way that he would do it based on his experience, which will put the most potent message across to the court. And we'll watch that doing. And again, the tactics of a court case are fascinating to watch. Mm. And you'll see the anatomy of this court case unfolded as the court case proceeds. And we'll be able to comment on how he's done it and whether there were blunders or not blunders. Right. Felicity and Paul, hi. Hello, Reedy. Mm. I just want to know whether she was sitting on the toilet and all whether the toilet lid was down. And I'll listen on the radio. Well, I don't know if that has been revealed yet, but uh, I suppose that at this time we'll talk about the significance of, 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 of either scenario. Hey, David? Yeah, we will. But already there's been some evidence which might indicate that she was standing. And that is that the gunshot, that the, the bullet hole in her hip is 95 centimeters from the floor. That would not be the case if she was sitting on the toilet. Hmm. And the trajectory of that shot through her hip will also give a very clear indication as to where and how she was standing and her orientation. So already the state are leading evidence that the shot that hit her in the hip uh, occurred when she was standing. And that's crucial. Again, that's a very, very important part, because remember, the, the possibility of her screaming when that shot hit her in the hip is very high. For her not to have screamed would be very unusual. And if the first shot hit her in the head, then she would not have screamed. So that's going to be a key issue to be traversed by both the witnesses for the prosecution and the witnesses for defense. Mm. Now, David, I know nothing about guns and bullets, and I hear all these bullets being described about what they are meant to achieve and how they explode and things that I'm 
not even remotely interested in. Uh, but I, I wonder now, what happens to to you when you get shot? Does the skin okay. burn? What actually happens? Well, can I can I correct you about one thing? Yes, these are not exploding bullets. These you see, are even my language is wrong. <laughs> expanding bullets. No, you do get exploding bullets. Okay. You, get, you get all sorts of exploding things. But these are not exploding bullets. These, uh, these black talon bullets are standard bullets like any other hollow point bullet. And the purpose of the bullet is this. If you shoot somebody with a bullet that simply passes straight through, that bullet carries with it on the other side of the target, it carries with it some of the energy. And the theory, it's not 100% correct, but the theory is that if you can put more energy into the target, you will have a greater incapacitating effect. So these bullets were originally designed for police officers who are being attacked by criminals who could produce lethal damage to the police officer. They were designed to stop these criminals in their tracks. And these have now become quite uh, common on the market. You can't buy black talon bullets in this country any longer, but you can buy hollow point, which will behave in very much the same way. And the purpose of the hollow point is that as it hits a target, as it hits something, it starts to expand. And that produces a flattened tip to the bullet so that it's a greater, it's, it produces a greater stopping power. In other words, there's a, uh, the, the, the force of the body on the bullet will be greater, or the force of the bullet on the body will be greater, rather, because of that greater surface area that it presents to the body. And so the bullet will stop in the body and not go through and injure somebody on the other side, but it will also produce more damage. Now, remember something else about this bullet. In the case of the black talon bullet, it's, it's the, the front of the bullet is, is grooved so that the jacket of the bullet starts to peel back. It's a copper jacket. Uh, and the jacket starts to peel back so that you've got almost like the petals of a flower. Mm. But that bullet is turning. So that will have an effect on the tissue. It will have a cutting effect on the tissue as it slows down. So it will produce a very nasty wound, uh, but it will not do particularly much more damage than any other hollow point expanding bullets. And the theory is that it's got greater stopping power. There's a lot of argument about that. Hmm. Ron in Queensborough, hi. Hi there. I'd like to know, you know, everybody knows that if somebody gets injured in an accident or shooting anything, not to move the body, to call the uh, paramedics as soon as possible. That's the sort of natural thing, the normal thing people would do. So I'm wondering what made him decide it's a good idea to carry her down the stairs, knowing he's got prosthesis on, he could easily trip and fall and injure her more. So I'd like to know if they've investigated that and when, you know, I'm looking forward to find out uh, what that reason is and how that gets investigated in this case. Okay. Well, of course, that question is predicated on the knowledge that Reva, that Oscar knew that Reva was dead <coughs> at the top of the stairs. Mm-hmm. If he thought she was still alive, it may very well have been his intention to get her down the stairs and to help get it to help as quickly as possible and undoubtedly that will be their answer not that he was carrying a dead body down the stairs but he's already given an indication that Reva was was alive what is important and I don't know whether the question has been asked is to how quickly the eyes start to glaze over and that's an indication of death as they start to dry out if the if your eyes are starting to glaze over and start and the cornea is starting to become milky 
that's an indication that it is no longer bathed with uh, tears and it's starting to dry. So I don't see that having been investigated at the moment. But I think that what they will say is that Oscar believed that she mm. was alive, if grievously wounded, and that he was carrying her down to help. And it's going to be a difficult thing to argue that he wasn't right. Yeah, And it no, may and, well be true, by the way. And also, just instinctively, I'm just imagining that if somebody collapses and, you, you know, thinking they're dead would be the last thing on your mind. Yes. You think, let me do something, let me... But that, that in any way would not have interfered with any of the pertinent, uh, um, I don't know, aspects of, 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 of the state of affairs, uh, David? <clears throat> Look, it, it, it may or may not, mm-hmm. um, and you must remember something else, that often in a, in a, in a shooting incident, uh, paramedics get there, and that will interfere with the crime scene. Uh. So many, many crime scenes are disturbed, and the skill of the forensic if- investigator is to try and untangle the disturbance of the crime scene from what was left or what was there in the beginning. So you have to interpret it, and it leads, again, to differences in interpretation. So all of these things become very subtle in your understanding of the crime scene and in the potential for generating differences between the defense version and the prosecution version. So it all becomes very, very interesting as to what each party will make of it. David, always, always a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye, really. David Klatzer, Dr. David Klatzer, private forensic consultant.